verses 14 through 21. That will be our text for our study this morning. Please read together and let's read aloud. Acts 2 verse 14. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out of my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants I will pour out my Spirit in those days. And they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Join me in a word of prayer. Our Father and our God, we give you thanks and praise once again for your great mercy and your loving kindnesses that are poured out to us each and every day, for your compassions, Lord, that never fail, and for your faithfulness, Lord. For indeed, even if we are faithless, you remain faithful, for you cannot deny yourself. We ask, Lord, for the outpouring of your Holy Spirit, that you, Lord God, would anoint each and every person here with your Spirit for wisdom and understanding as we study your Word today. We pray, Father, for those families that uh, have struggled this week with the loss of loved ones. We pray for the Rodriguez and Reese families, the loss of Rogelio, and we also pray for uh, Ray and Sandy Pierce, the loss of uh, his uh, mom and her dad this week as well. Lord God, you who are the, are the God of all comforts, we pray that you would comfort them with a comfort wherewith you have indeed comforted us. And Lord, may we also come alongside of them, that they would know that they are loved and, and, and cared for by those who know them and uh, are praying for them and st- uh, standing for them, Lord, before your throne of grace. We ask, Lord God, that you would ease their pain and strengthen them, Lord, through the times of, of, uh, of, of dealing with all of the transitions and uh, arrangements and all that go, go on. But we ask all of these things today in your precious and wonderful and holy name, the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen and amen. Y'all may be seated. Just one last reminder, it's 11.34 and it's uh, actually the second service that you're in. I know there was a little bit of confusion this morning having to change the clocks and all. Okay. Well, it has been said that the melodies of some of the greatest hymns of the faith were actually borrowed from songs that were sung in the bars and taverns of the day. 
Quite possibly the greatest hymn of the Reformation, Martin Luther's Mighty Fortress is Our God, being the most noted. The same is said of many hymns written and played by the Salvation Army during General William Booth's leadership. There is one other tune, not a hymn, but one other tune that all of us are familiar with that that actually was a song associated with drinking in that it was used as a sobriety test. It is said that if you could sing a stanza of this notoriously difficult lyrics and stay on key, you were sober enough for another round of drinks. I'm not offering suggestions here, by the way. So I'll let you know that. The original name of the song was the Anacreontic Song, which if you can just say that itself uh, would be a sobriety test of its own. Uh, it was actually a society that, uh, that met, a uh, musical society, and, and usually it was over that song that they decided that uh, uh, you know, they could uh, actually keep drinking because they could sing that song that was awfully difficult to sing. And the melody of that song was borrowed, actually, for another song that was called The Defense of Fort McHenry. And it was written by, written by a man named Francis Scott Key. Now, it was later changed to the title that we all know well. It is the Star-Spangled Banner. Now, I can assure you, I have heard the Star-Spangled Banner sung many, many times at many sporting events and all, and, and sometimes when that song is sung by some people... I, I, and by the way, I have a degree in music, so I think I could probably say this from an expert uh, uh, position, but uh, I've actually heard that song sung by some people in five different keys. It's not an easy song to sing. So I can imagine that one being uh, pretty much a good sobriety test song. Now, I mentioned all that to say this, that uh, those devout Jews who were in Jerusalem for the feast of first fruits, the Feast of Pentecost, probably thought that the 120 who were praising God in languages that they knew they had never learned were more than likely drunk and exhibiting behavior not unlike that of the many drunken singers who tried to sing songs just to stay uh, drinking. You see... Going back a little bit in what we've been studying in the book of Acts, we, we find that on that day of Pentecost, the 120 who had been with Jesus and were obedient to Him and going to Jerusalem to wait for the promise of the Father, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, were indeed waiting that day when all of a sudden this sound of a rushing mighty wind came upon them and then this this fire was distributed upon each one of them until there were tongues of fire upon all the 120. And it was at that very moment that under the very inspiration of the Holy Spirit that each one of those 120 began to speak in other tongues, tongues that they had not learned, tongues that they didn't know. And they began to speak the praises of the wondrous works of God. Because all that was taking place was, was attractive, in a sense, to all the people that were around them. And as we mentioned before, this was quite possibly in one of the, the areas of the temple where large gatherings could meet. And, and so people started gathering around uh, this, this group of 120 
people who were, who were giving these praises of God in other languages and people began to question and wonder what's going on here. They were amazed. They were, they were perplexed and, and uh, even some were mocking what was going on because they were saying, well, this is just a, a group that was uh, just drinking too early in the day. And so while their amazement and perplexity turned to scorn and mocking, another result of the power of the Holy Spirit exhibited itself. The Apostle Peter now stands before this crowd with a courage and a boldness that he had never had. In total contrast to his earlier denials of Jesus Christ before being filled with the Holy Spirit. And he preaches Jesus as Messiah, as one heralding a proclamation, doing it prophetically and doing it with authority. And there were thousands of people that were listening. And as we read the text again, we see that Peter standing up with the eleven, and that just reminds us, the eleven, including Matthias, who we often say, uh, is never mentioned again in the Scriptures, but here it's implied that he was there. That Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and he said to the men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. Oh, by the way, this is Acts chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 again. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. First of all, we should take note that the speaking in tongues stopped when Peter began to speak. Now this is a very important point that we need to make. Because some would, would want to believe that they just kept going on and Peter's over here shouting over what they were doing. No, tongues would have to stop here. Because Peter is now being used of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit would now work through the apostles' preaching without working against himself with tongues going on at the same time. Because God is not the author of confusion. And what Peter did at this point was answering, was to answer scorn with scorn. In effect, he was saying to them, you think, you're, you think that these people are drunk? How can they be drunk being that it's only nine in the morning? Morning prayers, by the way, traditionally ended at 10 o'clock in the morning and the custom was not to eat and to drink until after the morning prayers. So this is what uh, Peter was doing. He was just saying it's just ridiculous for you to even consider this particular thought. So Peter wasted no time in arguing the point. He just makes his point. And then with a sword of the Spirit in his hand, he quickly explains to the crowd what was going on. The 120 were not drunk. In fact, they were drenched. They were drenched in the Spirit of the living God. You see, if there was this inkling that all of us would all of a sudden have at one point in time in this room today, when storm clouds would form outside of this building and, and uh, dark clouds and, and, and certainly a, a rain starts happening, a heavy-duty rain raining cats and dogs and, and other various animals and, uh, and whatnot. But, but we all just decided all at one time to just go out and run in it and just stand out there and just let the water just soak us. Certainly after the rain, others who had been inside at the time would come and look at us and they'd say, you were actually drenched. That's what happens when you stand outside in the rain, so don't do it. I'm just, you know, I'm not trying to suggest you go do it if it happens. But the point of the matter is this. It is obvious that they're drenched. 
And it was an obvious thing that something had happened to these 120 that were praising God in languages they didn't even learn themselves, but given by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And something was going on, and Peter was now giving the explanation to them. He was going to, the, uh, to explain the phenomena that was taking place. Not to, to, to try to just use words of explanation. He was going to explain to them the phenomena by using the Word of God. He was going to explain what was taking place that day and prove to them as well that Jesus was indeed the Messiah of Israel. You have to understand, this is, this is quite, this is quite a, a thing for Peter to do, standing in the midst of many people that may have been there the day that crowds were also yelling, crucify, crucify, weeks before, about Jesus. The fact that Peter himself had been recognized by others as being one of the, the, the followers, one of the disciples of Jesus, didn't keep him from taking a stand and, and, and begin to preach the gospel through the prophet Joel. And it is important to note that the things that go on in church today should have scriptural explanations behind them. Just as he used the scriptures, as we'll see here in just a moment, so must we for the things that take place in the body of Christ. Because far too many people end up basing their behavior in church on experiences and not upon God's Word. And I'm not talking about taking God's Word out of context to try to justify what people do. It is the very fact that we need to be based upon the Word of God. Every experience that we have, I don't count an experience important unless it is based on God's Word. And so Peter begins with God's Word. And he quotes from a passage in the prophecy of Joel. And he says in verse 16 and following, But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out of my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath. Blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. By beginning his sermon with an appeal to Scripture, Peter did a few things. First of all, he lifted the thoughts of those listening to a higher plane. It was more than just Peter's thoughts. It was more than just Peter's ideas. It was more than just Peter's uh, observations. It was, just, it was more than Peter's opinions. We have to be careful when we hear people speaking today that, that we're not just getting a bunch of opinions about something. Peter began with the Word of God. And, and, and so he, he lifted the thoughts of all those who were listening to a, to a higher level because he used God's Word. Secondly, he gave an immediate explanation to people who no matter what they lacked spiritually were at least acquainted with the Holy Scriptures. It didn't matter where they stood uh, spiritually with the Lord. 
they were acquainted with, many of them knew the Scriptures. And then thirdly, he spoke his words with divine authority. He spoke with the authority given to him by God through the Holy Spirit. In other words, in quoting the Word of God, Peter was allowing the Holy Spirit to do the speaking. In quoting the Word of God, Peter was allowing the Holy Spirit to do the speaking. This focus on God's Word didn't quench the moving of the Holy Spirit. It fulfilled what the Spirit wanted to do. Let me say that thought once again. This focus on God's Word did not quench the moving of the Holy Spirit. It fulfilled what the Spirit wanted to do. I have oftentimes heard over many, many years, almost 35 years of knowing Christ, I've often heard some people say, oh, listen, we had this uh, wonderful service one day. We, had just, we, we, we sang for two and a half hours straight. We just sang. Some songs we just sang for a half an hour itself. One song, half an hour. And at the end of that service, oh, we were just so filled with just wonder and all that we just stopped and we said, you know, we've had church today. Let's go home now. You know, I'm thinking, I've heard this too often. Where's God's word? Where's the preaching and the teaching of God's Word? This is so essential for us. Well, brother, you know, we don't want to quench the Spirit. Oh, listen, you don't quench the Spirit when you preach the Word of God. It's God's Word. It doesn't make sense to say, oh, listen, you're going to quench the Spirit if you teach the Word. Those guys at Calvary Chapel, all they do is study the Bible. They just study God's Word. Well, what's wrong with that? As a matter of fact, we ought to be doing it. That ought to be the primary reason why we gather together. Whether we sang one note or not, even though we were called by Jesus to worship God in spirit and in truth. To worship God in spirit is to give God His due in our, in our worship, in our praise, in our expressions of love and understanding of, of, of having God meet with us in this place where two or more are gathered in His, in His name. There He is in the midst of us. So we're worshiping Him in spirit when we sing and, and, and psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and singing with melody in our hearts to the Lord. That's worshiping in spirit. But it's also, we are also told to worship in truth, which is to know God's Word. So we are to never consider the fact that if we speak the Word of God or teach the Word of God or preach the Word of God, that we are in any way quenching the work of the Holy Spirit. Because in doing so, when we preach the Word of God, well, we are only fulfilling what the Spirit wants us to do, which is to know the person and work of Jesus Christ. Folks, listen. The signs and the wonders and the speaking in tongues there on the day of Pentecost were all done in preparation for the work of God's Word. They were all done in preparation for what was to take place at what we're looking at today. Peter standing before all of this multitude to preach the Word of God. And it is a sad thing that some people want to set the Word against the Spirit by almost thinking that it is more spiritual in gatherings if there is no Bible study at all. So it will not be that way here. You see, in Psalm 119, verse 105, it says, Your your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. That's Old Testament. By the way, if you read all of Psalm 119, which is a lot of verses, but if you read all of Psalm 119, you'll realize the Word of God is central, is central in that particular psalm. 
<clears throat> the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. That is our desire when we teach God's Word to you, that you be complete, that you be full, in, in essence perfect, not perfect as we would kind of understand perfect, perfection in the Scriptures is being complete, it's being whole, it's having the whole counsel of God. But we want you to be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work that God wants to do through you. So the reading, the study, the teaching, and the preaching of God's Word is is essential. And Peter quoted nearly an entire paragraph from the prophet Joel, Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32, which focuses primarily on God's promise to pour out His Spirit on all flesh. And so on the day of Pentecost, prophecy was being fulfilled. Now, it had been fulfilled time and time again in the recent past, in the life of Jesus, and it was still being fulfilled. But it must be noted that what was taking place at Pentecost was only the near fulfillment of the prophecy. Because Peter did not say that Pentecost was the complete fulfillment of Joel's prophecy, because the signs and the wonders that he mentions here uh, had not occurred. As a matter of fact, if you look at Joel chapter 2, and let's look at what uh, Peter quoted from. By the way, uh, Peter actually quoted from what is called the Septuagint, which is the the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And uh, some of that can be seen in the wording that is used here in the Old Testament when he says, and it shall come to pass afterward, Peter said, and it shall come to pass in the last days. But those are just little things, and you can uh, look at that another time. But it says, and it, sh it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and on my maid servants I will pour out my spirit in those days. Now I want you to notice verse 30. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth or and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And then in verse 32 he says and it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And notice that is where Peter ends his particular statement of, of the Word of God. And then it goes on, though in, the, uh, in, in Joel's prophecy, for in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. And so in verses 30 and 31, where it speaks of wonders in the heavens, the blood, the fire, the pillars of smoke, the sun being turned into darkness, the moon into blood, that had not yet happened. That hadn't happened. It didn't happen immediately after Pentecost. It is for another time. It is for the far fulfillment, of the fulfillment that is yet to come at the coming of Jesus Christ again, the second time. The same with the last phrase of verse 32. In Mount Zion, Jerusalem, there shall be deliverance. That hasn't happened yet. But when is it going to happen? When Jesus Christ comes to deliver His people. And so, when the prophecy is read in context you see that it deals with the nation of Israel in the end times in connection with the day of the Lord. Now in our study of the day of the Lord, as we've been going through the book of Isaiah and, and, uh, and certainly uh, the Old Testament prophecies many times mention the day of the Lord. It isn't a single day. It is a, speaking of a, of a time frame. It is speaking of a, of a period of time. 
that is not a time of rejoicing, a time, but a time of great judgment and a time of great wrath, a time of woe uh, for those that are going to experience this judgment? Well, the final or the far fulfillment, of course, would come in the last days then, which Peter had good reason to believe they were now in. <clears throat> And so he mentions in the prophecy that these things shall, that shall happen in the last days. And we would think, why does Peter mention that then? And it's important to understand that uh, the, last, the idea of the last days deals with the times of Messiah, which we know now encompasses both his humble coming and his glorious return. It, it, it encompasses both his first coming as, uh, in the flesh and his second coming again in all of his glory. And so we can truly say that when Peter talks about the last days, they begin right then and there. When the Spirit of God is poured out on all flesh. And then I want you to consider for a moment the words of Peter in his letters to the church. Because this gives us another indication that he truly believed that they were living in the last days. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, he says, But the end of all things is at hand. Now remember, that's 2,000 years ago nearly 2,000 years ago. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. Now, let me ask you this. What does that say to us today, 2,000 years later, living at the the end of the last day period, or at the, the last of the last of the last of the last days? Peter was at the first of the first of the last days. We're at the last of the last of the last days. What does that say to us when it tells us that the end of all things is at hand? That means it's more at hand now than it was then. And if it's more at hand now than it was then, then we need to be more serious and we need to be more watchful in our prayers. Let me ask you this. Are you waiting for the Lord to come back? Are you waiting for the Lord's return? Are you serious in your prayers? Are you watchful in your prayers? Are you living your life for Jesus Christ today? I'm not saying this to get upset at you. I'm asking you to check your heart. Because Jesus can come at any moment. What a joy if He came now. But would you be ready? Later on in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3, Peter says, knowing this, that scoffers will come in the last days. So he knew that they were in the last days. But let me ask you this. Scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their lust. Does that not sound like today? Think of what Peter, uh, I'm sorry, think of what Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy when he says to him, in the last days perilous times will come. In the last days perilous times will come. Men will be lovers of themselves. He goes on this whole list. And I think, you know, when I read that, that's today. We're living in perilous times today. We're living in dangerous times today. You get up in the morning, you read the newspaper, you watch the news and you think, what kind of world do we live in? People don't care about others anymore. Now it's all about themselves. Now it's a selfish thing. And now it's a matter of what people... I mean, I saw a video yesterday on on, on the news of some guy beating up a hundred-year-old woman for her purse. What has got into people? That's demonic, folks. And it's sick. But that's the times in which we live. Are we living in the last days? Unfortunately, there are some people who don't think so. Well, we're getting better. Better at what? Better at getting worse. We're getting better at being more evil as a society and as a people. 
Scoffers coming in the last days. How many people are scoffing the Lord today? How many people are talking very clearly on the internet and in books and, 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 and whatnot uh, about you know, their hatred for Jesus Christ, their hatred for the church, their hatred for Christianity? We've got people going out there to try to prove that they found the bones of Jesus. I mean, proving against what? Proving against what has already been proven, that you can't find Him because He's risen. The proof of the matter is He's alive. And there's more proof to the resurrection of Jesus Christ than anything that any person can do in finding any box that has any common name, like Yeshua, which was a common name in the time of Jesus, like Miriam, which was a common name for His mother in the time of Jesus. Half of the people on the block had that name. Of course you're going to find their bones. But you won't find Jesus' bones. But you see the scoffers in the last days doing this. Why? Because of the next phrase in, in what Peter said. According, walking according to their own lusts. Think of all of these highly intelligent university professors. By the way, if you're a university professor here today and you love Jesus Christ, you are a rare bird. I mean, you just, you just stick out like a sore thumb. For a university professor to say, I believe in Jesus Christ. There are some, but very few. But how many of the, all the others just want to mock Christianity, want to mock faith in, in itself, you know, just having, having a religion, as it were? We're living in the last days, folks. And Peter says, we're in the last days from this point. Why? Because we're dealing with the coming of Messiah. And so the Holy Spirit now leads Peter to see an application to the church in the prophecy. He sees an application to the church. This is an important thought here. Because the prophecy of Joel was speaking about Israel. But he sees an application to the church. And in essence what he is saying to that crowd that day is this is the same Holy Spirit that the prophet Joel wrote about and He, Holy Spirit, has come. He, the Holy Spirit, has been poured out. That same Holy Spirit, He's here. He's poured out. That's what you saw today. An announcement such as that would have seemed hard to believe. It would have seemed inconceivable especially to the Jews, since they thought that God's Spirit was only given to a select few. That's how they thought the Spirit was given. If you, if you consider Numbers chapter 11, there's, there's a, there was a situation where, where, where Moses was really in need of, of, of help, you know, to, to minister to so many people, you know, he was doing it all by himself. Well, you know, 70 people were raised up, 70 men were raised up, and, and the Holy Spirit was, was poured out on them so that they could do the work of the ministry. But there were a couple of guys that actually weren't of that number, but they were outside of the camp doing exactly the same thing that everybody else was doing. You know, and, and it caught the attention of, of, of Joshua, the son of Nun, the, the, the assistant of Moses. And we're told in Numbers 11:28 that Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, one of his choice men answered. And he said to, he said to Moses, Moses, my, my Lord, forbid them. Forbid them to do what, what we who are anointed you know, are, are called to do. And Moses said to him, are you zealous for my sake? He says, oh, that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. See, Moses knew something. You see, the idea was that it wasn't happening at that, at that time that, all this, that the Spirit was poured out upon all people. So they had that understanding. Well, it was only given to certain ones. Moses was filled with the Spirit. David, I'm sure, was filled with the Spirit. Joseph and Joshua and so on and so forth. 
you know, we could mention the names of the prophets and all of that. And yet here at the, at the temple, in the day of Pentecost, there were 120 fellow Jews, both men and women, by the way, who were enjoying the blessing of the same Holy Spirit that had empowered the greatest in Jewish history. The greatest. I'm not talking about Muhammad Ali, by the way. But the greatest in human, I should say, in Hebrew history, in Jewish history. Moses, David, the prophets as well. All of them now had the Spirit poured on them. And so Peter began by focusing on three underlying and essential facts about Joel's prophecy. First of all, the Spirit of God was a present coming. The Spirit of God was a present coming. Secondly, the severity of God was a postponed coming. I'll explain this in a moment. Thirdly, the salvation of God was a permanent comfort. And so, the Spirit of God being a present coming. Look at uh, verses 17, 17 and 18 once again. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out of my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Let me stop there for a second and, and, and tell you that uh, you know, some people try to explain in a very simplistic manner what a vision, the difference between a vision and a dream. A vision is something you see when you're awake and a dream is something you see when you're asleep. And as I said, that's kind of a simplistic thought. But what's really important here is that it, it kind of makes sense when it says your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams because old men are usually asleep. But then no, I'm just... Uh, okay. I'll try to see which one of you were asleep today. Okay. Verse 18, And on my men servants and on my maid servants I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. Now understand this. When God says something twice, it's serious. Now, if God says something once, it's important and it's serious. But when He says it twice, it's doubly important. And two times the Lord used the phrase, I will pour out. I will pour out. The first time he uses that phrase, that statement embraces the Hebrew world and the Hebrew mindset and embraces the Hebrew people. How do we know this? Because he says, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. He says, your sons, your daughters, your, your men, your young men, your old men, yours, speaking to Israel, your men. But the second time that God uses the phrase, I will pour out, <clears throat> he no doubt includes the Gentile world as well that had been passed by in favor of the chosen people. And it's interesting how they are mentioned here because he says, my men servants and my maid servants. It's a distinction here. Now, God's interests in the world are wider, much more wide, and, and, and they go way beyond what some people think are based on narrower limits. Oh, listen, if you ask some people today, they'd say, well, you know, God only loves a certain amount of people. That's it, you know, He doesn't care about anybody else. They say that God puts a, puts a limit on all kinds of things. Some people will say, you know, the only people God saves are the, the, only people God saves are the ones that dress like us. 
smell like us, look like us. God's view is a lot bigger than ours. And I think one verse of Scripture really makes that clear. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through Him might be saved. How broad is God's view and love of the world? much broader, much greater than we could ever imagine. We're the ones that set more limits than God, by the way. The parameters that we kind of place on, on who can come and who can, you know, can stay out or whatever, much more narrow. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> excuse me, now I understand that uh, when... Uh, When we deal with the world, we're oftentimes told that we need to be careful, that we're not to love the world ourselves. John writes that to us in his first letter to the church. He says, do not love the world nor the things of the world. Those things that are in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, they're, they're of the world, they're not, they're not of the Lord. So we have to be careful of the things that are in the world, but... God looks at the heart and God looks at those that he created in his own image and, and he loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son. In 1 John 4 verse 14, John says, And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Now with that in mind, getting back to, to Pentecost here, never before had there been such an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Not even among the Jewish people had there been this kind of outpouring. Certainly God had raised up men like Moses and Malachi, David and Daniel, women like Deborah and Hannah, but nothing like this. Hundreds of people all together at one time, in one place, were proclaiming the mighty works of God in the languages of the Gentile world. I didn't mention that before on purpose. But you should have known that. When they are themselves are saying, hey, our languages, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, from Mesopotamia, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya, Cyrene, Rome, Jews, Brasilite, Cretans, Arabs, hey, the Gentile world, in the language of the Gentile world, the 120 began to speak the mighty works of God. What is God saying in this? What had once uh, been restricted and rare was now available to all. Now I know that uh, this outpouring of the Holy Spirit was without equal and it was, it was accompanied by a resulting outpouring of the Word of God. But God is saying, you see, I could have spoken to you all in, my, in, in the language union. I could have spoken to you in Hebrew or Aramaic. I chose to speak to you in the languages that you weren't 
so much born with, but you grew up in. Those Jews that had dispersed and gone to all of these other nations. They grew up in those languages. They grew up in those customs and in those uh, ideas, as it were. But God now brought it back to them as Jews who were devout and going to the, to the city of Jerusalem for the feast. This is my work. And I've poured out my spirit on all flesh. And then twice the gift of prophecy is mentioned. As it was now given to the church as it had been given to Israel. Twice it's mentioned. Just like the mention of the phrase, I will pour out upon. Twice it's mentioned, I will pour out my spirit on your sons, your daughters, your old men, your young men, and they shall prophesy. But also on my men servant and my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall also prophesy. Prophecy. The gift of prophecy in the Word of God. God's Word to men. It was certainly a foundational gift, as was the gift of, a, of an apostle. Paul points that out in Ephesians 2, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verses 19-22, when he says, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Notice verse 20, Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. The apostles chosen by Christ, the prophets chosen by God. Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. This was the Spirit of God a present coming, a present advent as it were, but a present coming. It was there, present at that time. The Spirit of God had come, as the prophet had indicated. But just as that was a present coming, there was also the severity of God to deal with, which was a postponed coming. Why? Because those things that were mentioned there did not happen and would not happen until another coming of the Lord Jesus. So notice in verses 19 and 20, I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. The reference to the day of the Lord reminds us that Pentecost was only a partial fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. Certainly there were signs of God's judgment at the wrath at the cross of Calvary. The signs of judgment and wrath at the cross of Calvary. Certainly we know that the sun was darkened on that day that Jesus hung on the cross. Certainly we know that the earth did shake as the accounts mentioned that certain rocks were broken up But that was just a little part indicating that a greater part was to come and and a greater part would happen when God would indeed bring that judgment and wrath upon the world which is yet to come, giving people yet the opportunity to receive Christ, living as we do in the day of grace, 
and in the age of grace. But as Jesus made clear in His Olivet Discourse, these signs belong to the second coming of Christ. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 24, verses 29 and 30. Jesus Himself said immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven, something a little different, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Have we seen that happen yet? No. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. That is yet to come. The severity of God. We think that God is judging now. Wait till He really judges. And that judgment is going to be toward all those who have rejected Christ as Lord and Savior. Now a good number of Bible teachers believe that there's going to be a second outpouring of the Holy Spirit after the rapture of the church. Revelation chapter 7 suggests that there will be a tremendous spiritual awakening among the Gentiles after the Lord comes for His church. And so it's like a second outpouring of the Spirit. Once again, Gentiles from every nation will be saved as a result of the witness of the 144,000 Hebrew evangelists. Now before I give you that passage in Revelation, in Matthew 24 verse 14, Jesus again says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. The gospel is going forth right now, going into every nation, into every land, into every language. And then the end will come. So we haven't gotten to that time yet. Think about this, Revelation 7, verse 4. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Again, this is very distinctive and very clear that these 144,000 are going to be Hebrew evangelists going certainly throughout the whole world. Now, verses 5 through 8 are, are all the names of the, uh, of the tribes that are mentioned. In verse 9, then it says, after these things... I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes with palm branches in their hands. The implication is that this gospel has gone to all the world. That there would be another outpouring of God's Spirit in such a way that many would be affected before Christ would come again. But then there is still the idea of the severity of God. If you will read today Revelation chapter 16 and look at the bold judgments that are poured out, the, 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 the judgments of wrath upon this world of, you know, a world filled with people that are without Christ, rejecting God and rejecting Christ. It tells you that there is a greater severity coming, but that is a postponed coming. Lastly, the salvation of God. This is what all of this leads to. The third fact of Joel's prophecy, the salvation of God, which is indeed a, a permanent comfort. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Verse 21. And it shall come to pass. It is going to happen that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. As we shall see in the next passage, this salvation will be centered on the person and the work, and let me add the name of Jesus Christ. 
The outpouring of the Holy Spirit meant that God was now offering salvation in a way that was previously unknown. And while it would be a few years before the gospel is offered to Gentiles, Peter's sermon text in Joel was a gospel invitation. It was an invitation to those that were gathered around them that day. It was an invitation to the many who would read this and to the many who would come to realize that whoever would call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And those Jews who knew God's word, who were acquainted with God's word, when they heard this, they knew what Peter was saying. They knew that there is a name associated with salvation. Salvation isn't just an act that we do somewhat, uh, you know, from our standpoint, you know, we say a prayer, we get on our knees or we repent and we this, and then we're saved. No, there is a name that's involved in all of this. There is a name, and, and they knew that. The name of God is a precious thing to the Jewish people. In Proverbs chapter 18, verse 10, we're told the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. That's salvation, to run to the name of God. To run to the name of the Lord. That is what we did when we came to Christ. When somebody preached the gospel of Jesus Christ to us, we thought of what Jesus did for us. We looked, you know, not, not so much physically looked at the cross, but we looked with our hearts at what Jesus did for us, and we ran to that cross. We ran not just to the cross, but we ran to the name of Jesus Christ. And we prayed in the name of Jesus for forgiveness of sins. And we prayed in the name of Jesus to, re, to give us the strength to repent of these things so that we might have a pure heart and, and, and live our lives in such a way that honors Christ and honors God. It is the name of the Lord that is a strong tower for us. We run to the name of Jesus because it is a powerful name. It is the most powerful name that there is. Hey, listen, there are a lot of people who have names today. There have been a lot of people down through the history in, in religious circles, in spiritual circles as well, with all kinds of names, but no name like the name of Jesus Christ. And we know this because in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, where we're, we're given here the, 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 uh, the statement made concerning Mary who was to bear God's Son. The angel says, and she will bring forth a son, as he speaks to Joseph. He says, she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Yeshua. You shall call his name Jesus. You shall call his name God is salvation. That is what his name means. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's the importance of the name of Jesus Christ. John, in the introduction of his gospel, in John chapter 1, first of all says in verse 11, uh, He came unto His own, and His own received Him not. But in verse 12 he says, But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in His name. You see the importance of the name. Our permanent comfort from the salvation of God is not just in what we've done. It is in what Jesus Christ has done. It is in Jesus Christ Himself. It is in the very fact that right now we have a relationship with a living God and a living Christ. One who was dead but now lives again. One who has risen from the dead. One who is sitting at the right hand of the throne of God interceding for us. Do you believe in the name of Jesus Christ? 
Do you believe in the power of the name of Jesus Christ to set you free from the things that have bound you for so long in this world? You see, when we came to salvation in Christ, he's, He set us free from all of that. If we're wrestling with things today, it's because we look back. But He set us free from it. And He set a seal upon us. And you know what that seal is? It is the seal of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is our guarantee. It is our permanent comfort in Christ. Early on, we talked about sobriety tests. Sobriety tests, sobriety tests are administered by police officers when they suspect a drunk driver is under the influence. They observe their eyes. They ask them to walk heel to toe or stand on one leg. They may even ask them to recite the alphabet. Well, you know what? The world will administer all kinds of tests on Christians. They're constantly looking at us. They're constantly looking at, at, at what we, where we may falter, where we may fail, where we may stumble over ourselves. I say that we show them that we are under the influence, not drunk with wine, but drenched in the living God, in the spirit of the living God. Let's show them that we're under the influence of God's Holy Spirit. You must first come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior before you can receive that wonderful gift of the Spirit. But it's a good progression, folks. And it's a necessary progression. Because you cannot say that Jesus Christ is Lord without the Holy Spirit. So confess with your heart and believe, believe uh, confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that the Lord is risen from the dead and you shall be saved. For there is no other name under heaven by which a person can be saved except in the name of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.